Welcome to Postwave. Today we're talking about the ancient philosophy of Stoicism. Whatever this is that I am, it is flesh and a little spirit and an intelligence. Throw away your books. Stop letting yourself be distracted. That is not allowed. Instead, as if you were dying right now, despise your flesh. A mess of blood, pieces of bone, a woven tangle of nerves, veins, arteries. Consider what the spirit is. Air, and never the same air, but vomited out and gulped in again every instant. Finally, the intelligence. Think of it this way. You are an old man. Stop allowing your mind to be a slave, to be jerked about by selfish impulses, to kick against fate and the present, and to mistrust the future. Dang. Yeah, the, the part about kind of hitting the body really resonated with me because I feel like so many of our desires that were put into us by evolution are just not cut out to function in the modern world we have with all the technology and just easy quick satisfaction that that is available to us mm, interesting so already immediately we are jumping into this quote from marcus aurelius from about 100 to 200 a.d so about 2000 years ago and immediately we're finding a direct uh insight into our own life as different as it is than this ancient ancient person yeah yeah i think that says something really profound about the human condition and how it hasn't really changed too much in in the past you know few thousand years at least probably longer and i i feel the same way about buddhism that these people thousands of years ago were able to come up with insights that are that still still seem so relevant mm. right yeah all 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 that you need in order to provide meaningful insight into the human condition is an experience of being a human and that's something that we share with our distant ancestors right right except for they they probably didn't they they couldn't comprehend understanding why those desires are there in the way that we do Oh, go on. What do you mean? Well, we we know we know how DNA and evolution works, and we can kind of see <laughs> that so many, you know, basically nature has just optimized us to reproduce and not die, <laughs> and it could, okay. could, couldn't give a fuck about our happiness. <laughs> okay, wow, interesting. I mean, you've definitely got the tone of stoicism. Yeah, um, <laughs> you've got yeah. So so stoicism, this ancient philosophy born in ancient Greece. Uh, would you say about 300 BC? Yeah, something like that. And uh, it had its heyday then and highly influential in the early Roman Empire as well. And one of the greatest uh, philosophers within the field of Stoicism is Marcus Aurelius, who was an emperor of Rome uh, in about the time I mentioned, a couple hundred years after Jesus so he was really a really remarkable individual because he is in this position of absolute power right he's in some ways you know it's it's obviously a very messy political situation maybe the position of the emperor 
while it is largely influential and has huge, huge powers associated, it also has many limitations associated as well. And so he's in this very unique position. And so, so often what happens to individuals in a position of power like that is they succumb to the vices, right? They become megalomaniacs or they uh, get these weird notions and or weird desires and do really all sorts of horrible stuff. And what's so fascinating to me about Marcus Aurelius is that it's so clear from every bit of his writing that he just wants to do what's right for everyone. He just wants to be as good and helpful and honest and decent a person as he can be. Do you think he recognized the way that power corrupts people? Hugely. Um, I won't be able to find a quote here right off at the top of my head, but he definitely, I'm remembering, he does have quotes about that, about how that's just the nature of power and that it's uh, upon every individual who has that responsibility to not allow those impulses to to overcome them. Right. And even even in ancient Rome, like our our brains definitely did not evolve to have as much power and influence as even a person like him had over thousands and thousands of people, maybe maybe even millions. I don't know. I don't know what the, the population of the ancient Roman Empire was, but still just on a on a scale that's so much different than what we were we kind of evolved to to deal with. What? <laughs> well, I mean, okay, p- picture, you know, like, like, uh, you know, some kind of nomadic tribe, hunter-gatherer mm. tribe, which is, you know, basically the earliest humans were that, right? There, There's yeah. no possible way they could have controlled thousands and thousands of people. You know, a- animals, animals don't do that. Mm. Unless you're an ant. Well, d- but does one <laughs> ant control all the other ants? <laughs> I have no idea. I mean, the queen, the queen definitely has a a, a prominent position, but it's it's yeah. I where are we going with this? I, <laughs> I don't no know. <laughs> what the fuck happened? Well, we just started talking about evolution and how the the brain isn't cut out to deal with that much power, and so we have to be really careful about how we how we approach that kind of situation and how we deal with it as humans. Right, right. So I think that's one of the hugely beneficial things about the Stoic philosophy because it so centers around the idea of doing what is right, doing what is logical, and being true to yourself, being brutally honest, and not allowing your impulses to control you. And so I think those qualities are incredibly powerful uh, in the face of those corrupting forces of power yeah they, they really de- devised a, a framework that can that can keep you in check if you if you follow it the the, th- the thing is that you know one, one of the tenets is do not be swayed by your desires and you could be mm-hmm. dissuaded you could be persuaded by your desires to just completely abandon the system so you have to kind of keep that's kind of the the necessary axiom you have to keep but once you commit to the system it'll it'll take care of you mm interesting (laughs) man so many subversive threads here the system of stoicism will kind of take care of you once you commit to it but Mm. the very desires you're trying to keep in check through using stoicism will try to convince you to not 
commit to stoicism yeah right true and so you got to be brutally brutally honest with yourself and i think that this is such a natural extension of uh of stoicism because at its core stoicism is built around the concept of logos you remember much about this term logos yeah well, i remember in i think probably high school english or something where we talked about the three main ways to convince people with rhetoric and it's you know ethos pathos logos or pathos hmm. i think it's supposed to be pathos but you know appealing to people's perception of what's right ethos and pathos appealing to people's emotions and the logos is appealing to people's logical thinking right but is that do you think that's all that logos encompasses or are there other things yeah no it's uh, it's funny you should ask i mean i think that logos is a term that encompasses so so much more than just logic and definitely the term logic was derived from the term logos um, but logos also is kind of this huge broad concept that encompasses not only the logical order of your own mind but the intelligent organization of the cosmos of the universe around you so this can include like celestial bodies their movements um the growth of plants uh, the term logos can be synonymous with nature it can be synonymous with god so you can see this is a pretty pretty wide encompassing term and held with uh a lot of reverence um, and in fact uh, i think this really goes to show the extent to which these ancient Stoic philosophers, to them, philosophy was as much religion as religion was. You know, it had that level of regard in their own lives. Right, right. That's really interesting what you said about, you know, the, the motion of heavenly bodies and all that, because that is, we've figured out that is kind of very connected to logic and, and mathematical thinking, right? I mean, that's, from what we can tell, that's how it all works and functions together even biology right it's just all mm. it's all a bunch of math and yeah I, th I think their holistic view of everything that's tied together like that is is really uh really beautiful totally and it's like again it's that ancient intuition it's like yeah okay we have the science and we have the things that we've learned to be true at the moment and like we know about genes and stuff but like these these ancient philosophers they got it you know they they understood mm -hmm. so another thing that's really fascinating though about logos is that it actually seems to imply a deterministic worldview for stoicism because uh it encompasses th this idea that everything that happens happens with this sort of divine order it, it's this structure of the universe and all of it, all of it's good. All of it is logical at its core. It all happens for a reason. And so part of this, though, adhering strictly to logical progression of one event to another, you kind of get pigeonholed into a deterministic world, one in which you have no free will. Right. And I, there, there's a what seems like kind of a contradiction because the the Stoics place so much value on self-control and self-discipline, and yet they adhere to this kind of determinism that 
would seem to exclude free will. But I think, I think this is one place where if, if it's not exactly compatibilism, you, you, you can recognize that actions, actions have consequences, but you keeping in mind what the consequences of those actions are can, can change what you will do. Which is, which is kind of like having your, your cake and eating it too. Um, but they do try to get around this, uh, and they they justify it by saying that you're choosing to engage with the world, you're choosing to act versus not act, is kind of like the same as if you are tied to a running horse, and you can choose to run along with it, or you can choose to not, and then you're going to be dragged along with it, and it's going to suck. And it's like, there's a difference there, you know, qualitatively there's a difference, but ultimately the result is the same. Mm -hmm. So I guess I can talk a little bit about my personal experience with stoicism, which kind of started when I had a pretty bad breakup in the beginning of 2018, just like four years ago now. And I started going to counseling and, and pretty, pretty early on my, my counselor suggested stoicism as a, as a possible source of, of progress and, and support and all that and i think i ended up getting the daily stoic by by ryan holiday and you know as time has gone on i've listened to more listened to more and read more on stoicism and uh i've been using sam harris's waking up meditation app for a while and there's some really good talks in there on on stoicism and kind of the the specific methods you can use so there's th- three of them that have that have been kind of had the biggest impact on me. And the first one is called negative visualization. So that's when you imagine not having something that you currently have. You know, it could be like a relationship or a job or even, even just the ability, to, you know, being physically able, you know, to just go outside and take a hike or something or, or play the piano. Like I've, I've, I have this shoulder surgery coming up in, in, over the summer and I've just been kind of thinking a lot about oh what if I just couldn't play the piano because <laughs> mm. you know a lot of times it's hard to get myself to to practice these days and and yeah imagining something not being there just gives you a gives you a whole new perspective yeah I mean that seems like kind of a double-edged sword like in certain ways that could lead you down a dark rabbit hole yeah yeah I mean it it could, um, but if you find yourself going down that dark rabbit hole sometimes anyway, then it can be a way to kind of frame it in a positive light. Mm, you know, like, uh, like so, so, so. What's what's the positive outcome for you there? Is it just like, oh, appreciate now what you have? Yeah, yeah, because uh, a- anticipating. But ruining the current the current uh existence of that thing by worrying about it disappearing is is kind of productive and i mean it's, it's the whole thing about like i just said ruining the rest of something by worrying about when it's going to end and if it doesn't end then you waste all that time worrying for no good reason and if it does end then you waste all that time ruining the thing that you had a limited amount of time left <laughs> to experience right. you know yeah, I think that's hugely uh, a tenant of Stoicism. I know that Marcus Aurelius talks about mortality a lot, and 
there's so many passages where he's basically just saying, look, we're all going to die. You're going to die. Everything you've ever done and known will be forgotten. Deal with it. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. As, it's like so harsh and stark and brutal because that's like the stoic flavor. And it's like, we kind of like it because of that. But um, it's also, it's also saying like, appreciate the present moment, you know, because, because the future and the past as well are illusory. They don't exist. The only thing that exists is right now. And so you better appreciate it because like, what if, what if, this is the last time you ever do this thing. Right. Right. And that, that, that ties in definitely a lot to, to Buddhism and, and meditation and thinking about the present moment and recognizing that the present moment is actually all that's real. Mm. It's the only thing that can be real just because of the way we, we perceive the world. Yeah, absolutely. So kind of related to that is the idea of last time meditation. So just recognizing mm. that there are it, kind of in a similar vein there there will be a last time that you do everything including very mundane things like washing the dishes mm. right you're going for a walk mm-hmm. of course you would approach those things differently if if you knew you were doing them for the last time but the 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 idea is that you can never actually know and so it it's more productive to think about those as being the last time right so maybe you can appreciate them fully live in the moment mm-hmm. and again i can see how that could kind of be twisted in a negative way but I think the idea is to kind of twist it back and use it to kind of strengthen yourself and grow. Mm. Yeah, that's definitely, definitely at the heart of what stoicism attempts to accomplish. It's like becoming the best version of yourself in the present moment so that you can be harmonious with the greater logos of the entire universe. Mm -hmm. And so the third thing is I feel, I feel like these are all very, very related and kind of parallel but the 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 last one that i've found pretty useful is this idea of perspective retrospection which is imagining yourself in the future looking back and you know you get you would give anything to return to the way you are now and again using just the 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 analogy of or the example of physical ability right at some Mm -hmm. point if you're if you're lucky and you live to an old age you won't be able to do the things physically that you are able to do now and Mm -hmm you very likely will just wish you could return to that that age, right? And I think that, that again, this kind of gives you a deeper appreciation of the the things that are seem so normal and, and commonplace in your life. Yeah, I think that could be really, really valuable. It's uh, interesting to think about as well because going back to Marcus Aurelius, his, his collection of works called Meditations, uh, that name was given to it afterward it's just like all all of his journals basically all of his philosophical writings and these were written over the last 10 years of his life when he was already pretty old as far as the average age of the time went mm-hmm. you know, he's probably like uh 50s and at the time he was dealing with a greater and greater number of uh physical ailments you can tell from the writing that so as it progressed he kind of delves into this darker and darker place uh, where he more fixates on not allowing the pains of the physical body to in his in his mind corrupt his mind Mm -hmm. 
And I think that is where this theme all throughout his writing and uh, also tied in with uh, the Greek Stoics uh, is this separation of the mind and the body. And to me, this is the greatest mistake of Stoicism. This is the one thing that they just did not get right. As much as the they're so valuable and uh, insightful and we learn so much from their perspective, they did not take this into account. How's that? It's because of this, uh, this pain. It's this separation that he, he feels that he needs to shut down the body, shut down the nervous response to the body because its overwhelming sensations were getting in the way of him, you know, thinking rationally and, you know, keep keeping his emotions in control. And so that's where you get this sort of sense of uh, that the body is, uh, in some senses, dirty, uh, a uh, a blocking, uh, muddying matter that the soul is forced upon. Mm. Yeah, that's. <laughs> it seems kind of, see uh, with our with our modern perspective, it seems it seems it seems weird to say that the soul is forced upon the body. I mean that that is, of course, of course, that's the whole question of of dualism. But yeah, to, to us, it seems very obvious that the the soul comes from the body. If I guess if you're not religious, you know where mm-hmm. where else where else could it come from? Yeah, and I mean, we 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 could we could debate that one back and forth yeah. for for literally eons. But yeah, uh, I think. I think uh, without without pointing any sort of directionality that one comes to the other, I think we can absolutely agree that the two are inherently linked and influence each other greatly. Um, uh, one example is, of course, like when I started exercising regularly and eating healthy, lo and behold, my mental health increased drastically. Mm-hmm. Imagine that. <laughs> yeah, it's like there's an inalienable... Uh, connection between the system that incorporates both your mind and your body and there's there really is no separation um this this idea of separation of the mind and the body though this actually goes back further way before marcus aurelius before the early stoics even to plato uh and the and the uh ideas around his his time there was again this sort of sense that the metaphysical was this pure, like like the Platonic ideal world, and that that was like what the soul was. You know, that's that's where things, uh, ideas come from, and that's like the truth, the true world that we hope to aspire to, and yet we are forced into this muddy imperfect world where the physical form the body the uh matter in general uh, fails to achieve that ideal and i think this is a little bit of a uh misdirection as well but at its core definitely seems to describe something really tangible about our experience yeah yeah no i agree and and i don't know if, if it's just being idealistic but but part of me 
wants to believe that humans do have something like that that is kind of pure and and has all the the right motivations and intentions and i would probably guess that it's it's the more the more advanced part of our brain you know what the part that makes makes us human and the part that kind of separates us from from primates and lower animals i think they're yeah i want to believe that there's some core goodness to to all people mm. and like i i agree i agree and i think that too but i think the mistake that the platonists make is failing to see that that goodness is in all of this imperfect physical world like that's what all of this is made out of it's all that same good idealistic core yeah and i guess i i guess imperfect versus perfect is is a human judgment there's nothing exactly that, <laughs> the the universe kind of by definition is perfect because it it is what there is mm. yeah <laughs> yeah yeah and like plato plato who was largely influential for the stoic stoics that came after he constructed this ideal world as uh, a ideal society of this is how everyone acts um and or should act and if we could just do this everything would be great but i think the biggest mistake he made there is this fixation on static a static world he seems to think that if you could just get it right then it would stay that way forever mm -hmm. and i don't think that's true i don't think that's how the world works yeah no you can't just expect it to you know to do to do one thing and have it stick forever because the world mm -hmm. you know the world kind of works on equilibrium and things will always go back to equilibrium given enough time mm -hmm. right yeah and i mean i guess like to, to play devil's advocate i guess he would say well but the we want to establish a new equilibrium and if we can just get to that equilibrium then it will remain there mm -hmm. yeah I, I guess that could that could make sense but and yeah it's like it can make sense and that's maybe why his ideas were so influential because they have a real impact on the world on the uh, the way our society is structured but maybe doesn't actually see clearly to the core of what it means to exist mm. so what is what is the core of what it means to exist eric <laughs> <laughs> i'm glad you asked trevor <laughs> the core of what it means to exist is in the words of alan watts motion it at the core of everything it's kind of like if you are way 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 up in an airplane and you look down at the ocean below you and you see these huge waves that are just standing perfectly still and they look small to you but you know that they're huge because you're so far away and they look absolutely still but if you get close all of it is in motion all of it is turmoil and boiling and going in all sorts of different directions down to the very last atom and i think that that is uh directly analogous to to plato's perspective is that he's so far up above everything that all of the little details seem ironed out and all he sees are the the static uh imp static impression of those things which remain but 
those things are in and of themselves moving mm. kind of kind of how our bodies seem like static things but it's it's a bunch of very small cells in constant flux and you know the microbiome and all that stuff it's there's there's nothing actually that's staying still staying still it's it's all a bunch of constant motion that it, that's trying to keep some kind of equilibrium but it i mean d- equilibrium doesn't last forever in the case of the body right mm-hmm. if you're enjoying what you're listening to so far and you want to support us somehow there's lots of ways you can do that you can go follow us on facebook or instagram or visit us online at postwavepodcast.com or send us a nice email at postwavepodcast at gmail.com you can also follow us on your podcasting platform of choice we're on pretty much everyone out there give us a nice review if you're on a platform that supports that or a five-star rating thanks for listening So kind of connecting this idea that the the mind is very connected to the body with the fact that these people thousands of years ago had these deep insights into human nature. How do you, how do you think we got there? Like how did morality and I don't, I don't know if you call uh, it morality exactly, but how do you think people developed a sense of how to be, how to have a good life, how to be happy and how to how to not suffer how do you how do you think that started man i mean that's that's such a hard question i mean it goes back it goes back such a long time um how long is like we we have no idea i mean if you think about how ancient our modern world is um like 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 remember how we were talking about how the similarities that we have with the ancient people with Marcus Aurelius and the Stoics, this was like 2,000 years ago, their world was in so many ways unimaginably different from our own. And and yet there's a certain similarity, something that we share, something that means to be human, that is true for both us now and them back then. But how far back does that go? I think it goes back a very long way. I mean, I remember um, Dan Carlin with Hardcore History. He has a podcast where he mentions at a certain point, you know, like talking about ancient Mesopotamia, maybe like 5,000 years ago, uh, ancient Babylonians. And uh, there's cities, capitals, where these ancient people had gone out and conquered all of these other places and brought back their relics and stored them. And we can tell from the relics that they were relics at the time of the conquering. You know, these ancient, ancient uh, treasures were ancient at the time of conquering their world 5,000 years ago. They would never have thought of themselves as a prehistoric people. They would have thought of themselves as an ancient, well-evolved culture with 
cultural roots going back thousands and thousands of years. So it's like, how, how far back do we go? And at what point does the modern world, does the modern, what it means to be human stop becoming recognizable? Yeah. Yeah. And of course, of course, anyone, <laughs> anyone who's alive doesn't think of themselves as old because they're in the present kind of by necessity. Right. Um, mm -hmm. But what's really interesting for me to think about is, is if you go way, way back, you know, before language is invented, did we have a sense of how to live a good life or how to, what, what's right and wrong, you know? Mm, right. Like you mean like, uh, bef before language, before, before civilization. Yeah. Well, definitely before civilization, but yeah, before, before language, when, and we, of course we don't know, uh, at what point humans or human ancestors developed language, but you know, when, when people are living in kind of lar large groups and, and maybe they could develop some sense of right and wrong without without language i mean everyone would probably agree that killing a member of your group was was wrong right mm. <laughs> i mean unless unless they're they're someone we don't like right. unless they killed someone else i don't know unless they're the uh minority that we are scapegoating to make ourselves feel good about right that that's why i said member of your yeah. group <laughs> <laughs> yeah totally yeah. <laughs> no <laughs> um i mean it's interesting and i think that in order to have a sense of right and wrong you have to have a sense of self-awareness a sense of uh living not in the present right because animals as far as we can tell live 100 percent in the present and maybe the whole history of humanity is just the story of what happens when we become self-aware so that we're not living in the present and then all of history falling from that point is all fallout from that deviation, from that mistake. And everything we've done, everything we've learned since then is like the consequence. <laughs> Dang. Wow. I, I kind of I like that idea. So, so it's all a mistake. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That, that we just forgot how to live in the moment and so it leads us down these dark rabbit holes of uh not logic but um what we would think of as logic you know it's like justifications and uh impressions and theories and you know ideas ideas separate from existing in the present world and that's that separation those ideas becoming incumbent upon our world becoming manifest as uh as we draw closer to them yeah <laughs> um i i mean there, there are you know there are definitely a lot of studies that have shown that people in hunter-gatherer societies tend to be a lot happier on average than people in modern societies and of course, then either you know there's way less there's way lower rates of anxiety and depression things like that mm -hmm. and yeah I think, famine war mm -hmm. like all the things that we've done to each other in the name of in the name of good, that's it. This idea of like, we are doing these things for the pursuit of goodness. And the things that we're doing are things like killing people and horrible, like every possible horrible thing you could ever imagine any human doing to another that we have done mm -hmm. and continue to do. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, that, that, that's, that's, um, that's the result. Yeah. And I think I think a lot of that has to do with ascribing natural events to the supernatural, right? 
and and thinking that the gods want you to do a certain thing mm. yeah i mean that's that's definitely a perspective um and uh one one that has had a lot of influence on cultures what 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 yeah i mean thinking about religion going back to the very first story um in our in our culture um adam and eve you know it's hugely influential influential in western culture is christianity of course in the bible and uh the very first story is the story of adam and eve which is just humans hanging out in the woods eating food and shit and having a good time and then suddenly they become self-aware and then it's like well well shit and then like everything that followed is 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 the consequence of that you know <laughs> that's not how i remember it <laughs> how, how do you <laughs> yeah back, back in the day back, in, <laughs> back when i was a boy <laughs> i was there that's not how it happened <laughs> uh, well i mean isn't isn't i'm gonna misremember this probably but isn't the story that you know there was this apple in the tree and and Adam and Eve were there and, and God said, don't eat the apple. And then mm-hmm. doesn't the snake convince them, convince them to eat the apple. And then that's like the, that's kind of the original sin, right? Yeah. Yeah. But the, the apple represents knowledge, right? It represents specifically the knowledge of good and evil, right? This idea that some things are preferable to others. Some things are good. And so like this, uh, incumbency of, uh, you you must now act or you you feel obligated to act in certain ways because of this concept of good and evil mm-hmm. yeah and I, th- I think a lot of people would relate that to to sex right because that's something that that's so mm. uh harped harped on in <laughs> in Christi- <laughs> christianity i mean a lot of a lot of religions right mm. yeah and i think that ties directly back into the uh, stoic and platonic idea of the uh separation between mind and body and that you should not allow your uh physical impulses to influence your mind mm-hmm. yeah they're, they're, dumb. well <laughs> <laughs> I, I think i think it's it's yeah i think it's admirable how they're they're coming to it not from a god said this is bad but you will be better off for yourself if you do this you know same same thing with the with the buddhists i think it's it's more mm-hmm. about what will actually have the most the best practical effects on your life mm-hmm but this goes right back into what we were talking about in, I think, like several previous episodes. You know, we first brought this up in the Ted Echocoso episode and then uh, recently in another one. Just the idea of um, the different levels of enlightenment um, according to the Dzogchen uh, tradition and how, uh, you know, you have like the sutra, which is rejecting the poison, which just means like, becoming ascetic completely removing yourself from the world um feeling nothing allowing your mind to remain blank all the time um then the tantra which is using that poison as a medicine you know engaging with it intentionally and carefully parts of the world allowing that back in and then finally the dzogchen being ingesting the whole poison meaning just embrace all of the physicality of our existence don't try to fight it enjoy it mm. that, that's interesting because you know we, we keep saying how it, how these desires that that control us a lot of the time are so fundamental to human nature but i wonder if there is some kind of convergent thing where because we're all 
you know, working with these same desires, different cultures will come up with these very practical solutions to this problem independently. And I, don't know, I think that's kind of a beautiful thing, you know, that, that nature kind of created the conditions that seem kind of crappy, but in the end, you know, it, it's all nature, but it, it created the, the, the possible solution for those, those kinds of, you know, just, just the circumstances of human, human nature. Yeah, absolutely. And, and even going beyond that, uh, thinking of these philosophies, not even just as like a solution to a problem, but as just a perspective, an understanding of the world, in other words, a truth, and so remarkable, I think, uh, that they, uh, like you said, people from varying traditions, different historical backgrounds, coming independently to the same, same perspectives, the same understanding. And it's like, what is the unifying? What is the unifying force there? What is it? What is? Is it that we're all human? Is that what it is? Does it go beyond that? Is it that we are all conscious beings? Right. Well, it kind of makes me think of Richard Dawkins, Richard Dawkins' idea of memes and how, you know, someone, given a time, people in a culture will come up with this kind of idea. And because it's a pretty good idea, it'll spread and other people will take it on, right? It only, it only takes one person to kind of come up with this this kind of core set of ideas about self self-control and discipline and not being swayed by by material desires you know and once mm. that once someone in a culture comes up with that it spreads because it makes people happier and w more well-adjusted and more successful and and all that stuff so your take on it is more just the uh natural selection utility of how engaging in these philosophies improves your chance at reproduction yeah, well, not not even like not even human reproduction, but just the you know, like like Dawkins talks about the the reproduction of of ideas. Mm. You know, it's interesting that ideas function a lot like genes, and they can you know compete with each other and and that kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, I think there's absolute truth to that. Um, that's kind of a stark way to put it, though, isn't it? It's like the only reason these ideas there's no absolute truth. There's no there's no inherent truth to these things. It's only that they are functional. Well, <laughs> not not to pull a Jordan Peterson, but I think if things are functional, that 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 means in some sense that they're they are real or hmm. or true. Not that not that I totally agree with him on that. I mean, just because something is is functional doesn't mean it's it's definitely real. But uh, I mean, yeah, when it, when it comes to morality and being happy, I feel like if something is very helpful to a lot of people, then there's truth to it. That's a really interesting take. Yeah, I think that there may be some truth to that. But yeah, I would, I would, I would, you know, as 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 sad as that might seem to you, again, I think I think it's beautiful that it that it all comes back to this logos about how the universe works and the fact that these ideas kind of bubbled up from from the kind of the the natural animal state of humans eventually. Mm, right. No. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't say that's sad at all. I think there's definitely a beauty to that. 